the coaches network bringing the game together hey guys you're now listening to the coaches network podcast a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete talent and personal development my name is coach yas and i'm a uefa a license football coach coach developer and content creator i'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys their life lessons and how you can make an impact enjoy Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and today I've got a very special guest with me. My guest today is Paul Simpson. Good evening, Paul. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Yas. And yourself? Fine, thank you. Thank you very much for being with me this evening. Uh, Paul, no for, just for those that aren't familiar with who you are and you know, what you do, do you mind just giving them a background as to what that is? Yeah, I'm currently the assistant head coach at Bristol City, um, working alongside Dean Holden. Uh, Keith Downing is a, a, another assistant. Uh, we've got uh, Pat Mountain, the goalkeeper coach, and uh, a guy, Khalifa Cisse, who's just starting out on his coaching journey. Uh, he's working alongside us as well. Um, so an experienced group, uh, young people in there, enthusiastic, um, and a good team to work for at the moment. Excellent. Thank you for that. And, you know, just kind of want to take you back, you know, get straight into it, right back to the start of your coaching journey then. You know, mm. where did that first come along for you? When did you first kind of, you know, dip your toe in the water end? What was it about um, coaching that caught your eye, essentially? Yeah, I, the first time I dipped my toe in it was when I was a player at Oxford United a long, long time ago when the uh, the old prelim badge was was on the go. Um, and I did that. Um, and I've got to be honest with you, it's so long ago. I don't even remember why I wanted to do it, but I did it um, found it quite interesting. Um, didn't really do any coaching as such at the time. I mean, there was a few times where... As a player, you were asked to go and do some um, community work and you might go in and take a PE lesson or be part of a PE lesson. Um, so it came in handy for that. And then when as a player at Derby County, I think, I think I was like most players that when you're in the thick of the game, you actually think you're going to go and play forever. You don't actually think your career is going to come to an end. So I got to that point at Derby County where I thought, Jesus, I need to start thinking about something else here. I mean, my career is starting to, to go away now and I, and I might, you know, I might have to look at something. So I did one of my coaching badges. I did like a conversion course that the PFA and the FA were running for anybody who held the prelim badge um, to be able to do the C and the B license joined together. So I did my B license. I was then coaching Whilst I was a player at Derby County, I was coaching in their academy and I was I took the under nines one year, then the under tens. And I, I, I started to get a feel for it and started to enjoy it. So I then went on my A license and did that. Um, and at the same time, I also decided to go and do a sports science degree. Um, again, I've got to be really honest with you. I have no idea why I decided to do that. It just seemed a really good idea at the time. Um, I did a, a distance learning five-year sports science degree. I ended up coming out with an honours degree in it um, and I was doing my A licence. And I just remember my... Uh, so after Derby County and doing nines and tens, I then moved as a player to Blackpool and I was living on Brockhall Village near Blackburn's Academy. So I then went and got a job there where I was working with the under eights, um, which Blackburn felt that that was important to get boys in at that under age, under eight age group, because if you hadn't got them, then the chances are the other bigger clubs were going to take them and you, and you miss the opportunity. Um, and that's how it sort of worked out. And I, I do remember 
my first under eight age group, we had Matty James with us and uh, he, he was one of them players who did move to a bigger club and went to Manchester United and then moved on and was part of the Leicester City team that won the Premiership. So, you know, there's a it was an important role, but a role that I enjoyed. And then from that moment, I, I made a massive jump from being under eights um, head coach at Blackburn Rovers to being the player manager of Rochdale in League Two. And uh, from the sort of um, the the sort of naivety of under eights going into the big bad world of, of pro football as a as a head coach or as a as a player manager was such a massive transformation for me and um, a real shock to the system. Now, thank you for that. Obviously, you've kind of really crammed in a few years into kind of maybe a couple of minutes there, and, and I want to kind of. Um... Maybe, you know, maybe a word I should have started really was maybe take you back a little bit further. And, you know, you, you did have a career as a player. Mm. So where, where did that journey begin? And now I guess we can kind of tail it back into the coaching part because I've got a few questions I want to touch on there. Yeah. Uh, well, my, my professional career started at Manchester City. Mm. Um, I was brought up in Carlisle, um, way up in the north, uh, played in all the local leagues there, played for the schools, for the counties. Um, and I was spotted by a scout, a guy called John Bell, um, playing on um, a place called Richardson Street on a Sunday afternoon. I was playing one Sunday afternoon and John Bell, the scout for Man City, saw me and um, spoke to my dad um, and asked if I would like to go on trial there. And at the time, I mean, we're going back to late 70s, we're talking here now. Um, at the time, you couldn't actually sign for clubs until you were 14 years old. So I was probably about 12 at the time, I think. So it was a case of just going on trial at places. So my, my father was quite selective about where I went to where I went on trial. So although, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it I, because I was special, everybody got invited to every single club all over the place. So there was a whole host of places who wanted me to go. But I went to, I, I trained with Carlisle during the week. That they, they That wasn't really a a serious proposition for me because they were in the lower leagues and I wanted to go higher, but I went to Ipswich. I went to Man City, Sunderland, um, should have gone to Bolton, but I was injured. I went to Preston North End, um, but I just felt that City was the right place. So when I turned 14, I signed at City and then I stayed there for a good few years um, through to uh, 1988, I then moved on to Oxford United, then to Derby County, then Wolves, uh, Blackpool, Rochdale, Carlisle, and that's where I ended my playing career there. In between, I had a few loans, one to, well, my first loan was when I was 17, I went to Finn Harps over in Ireland, um, which was a great experience. Um, then I went to Sheffield United and Walsall, um, but but all in all, I, I just I felt as though I had a, a, a really good career, played a lot of games, and I've got to say, thoroughly enjoyed every moment of it. No, that's fantastic, and obviously, you know, having that range of experiences over you know all those different clubs, you know, you played over six hundred and fifty games in your career um, across different you know clubs and even under different managers. Just curious to know that you know before we really start moving into the coaching aspect of your journey, what was some of the best coaching that you'd received? you know could you describe what that looked like yeah um well it's really strange jazz because when i first started in football in 1982 at manchester city i have to say we didn't get coached if you didn't know how to play the game you there was no place for you you know we we literally were um 
you're thrown into it and you have to know the game and the way that it was all set up then. So I joined City, I was I was actually 15. I was about two weeks away from my 16th birthday because I'm, my birthday is end of July. So I did the first couple of weeks of pre-season um, and didn't actually get paid because I was too young. So I did all of that and it became really clear that it was a flipping tough business to be in. We were absolutely beasted through pre-season. Um, you know, I remember going home for the first time after about three or four weeks and my mum and dad thought I'd, I'd wasted away. I just went gaunt. I was so, we'd worked so hard um, and it became really clear that if you didn't know how to play your position, you were going to get slaughtered. You know, we had some really tough coaches there. My youth team coaches were... Tony Buck and Glimpardo, two, two ex-City players, two ex-City legends, to be honest with you. And then my second year was John Ryan, who again was a, an experienced player. And really, you did have to know the game. So I, I can't say at Manchester City I was coached, but I was taught, um, what's the best way to describe it? Probably the basic principles of how to be a good professional footballer. Um, how to live your life properly, how to go about your business properly, the the demands that you have to place on yourself, the sacrifices that you have to make. Um, and I always remember, I was really fortunate that I made my debut at Manchester City when I was only 16. So I, I'd made my debut on the Tuesday night for the reserves. And then I made my first team debut on the Saturday at home against Coventry in 1982. And after a couple of games, I, I, I came out of the side but I was still training with the first team. And I mean, at the time, there was only one sub. So, you know, you, you were involved. And we're only talking about maybe 14, 15 players training with the first team at the time. And John Bond was the manager. And one day he said, we finished training. He said, right, everybody go back to the stadium, go and get showered, get rested because we've got a game tomorrow. So I was walking off and I'm, I'm 16 at the time. And my youth team coach, Tony Buck, shouted over and said, where are you going? I said, I'm going back to the, to the ground to get train skipped. And he said, um, oh, you've made it now, have you? And I said, no, no, not at all. I said, but the gaffers told me I've got to go back. And he went, no, you haven't made it. He said, you're a long way from making it. He said, you can be really lucky if you play one game as a professional. And 10 games, you're still lucky. You're only a footballer if you make 50, 100, 150 appearances. And that is something that drove me through the whole of my career because I wanted to play as many games as I could. Um, and I know just before you said I'd made over 650, when I eventually retired, when I was just turning 40, a friend of mine up in Carlisle, a guy called Jeff Haff, made a presentation to me at an awards night and he gave me a shirt with 808 on it. And I'm going, what is that? What's the significance of 808? And he said, that's how many appearances you made altogether. And that gave me so much satisfaction to know that my career was driven by playing as many games as I could. Obviously, you want the, the rewards that go with being a footballer. I would have loved to have won more, more honours, more, more trophies, won more caps, all of that. But that was big for me because of that comment that Tony Buck made to me. That drove me for the rest of my career to make sure I played as many games as I could. And I'm not saying I, I played well all the time, but... It was a determination to be out there playing. So Manchester City didn't really teach me anything coaching-wise apart from how to be a professional. I think the first time I really remember being coached, and I had some good managers. Brian Horton was fantastic for me at Oxford United. 
Um, the first time I really remembered getting coached was when Steve McLaren joined Jim Smith at Derby County and he coached us. He coached us how they wanted to play. Every session had a purpose to it as opposed to, you know, I, I think you can just put, um, you can put sessions on that are just for people to work. And, and obviously by working and doing the skills you're going to, you, you'd like to think you will improve. Um, but Steve and Jim, they coached us how they wanted us to play. And that's probably the first time I had that. So that was um, that was a real education to see that when, when that came about. You know, I just want to take you back to your, you know, your first experience that you discussed there about Manchester, Manchester City in that you didn't really get coached, but there was always an expectation for you to, I guess, uh, understand the game. Mm. Now, you know, that, that term gets thrown around quite a lot you know, understanding the game and, you know, players do that do and don't understand the game. Would you mind just maybe... You aren't too familiar with what that... Sorry. All right, no worries. Uh, maybe for anyone that's maybe not too familiar with what, what that actually means, because, you know, I'm sure you'd agree, football is a simple game. Yeah. Um, but I think it's us as people within it that can overcomplicate it. Um, yeah. So you know, from in, from your perspective, what 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 does that mean to understand the game? You know, because I think there's a lot there's a lot of uh, perceptions and different opinions on what that actually means and what that should look like. But you know, it'd be interesting to get your views on that. Yeah, I think it's um, you know what what I see nowadays is a, is a lot of really really talented young footballers who come through academies and technically they're fantastic. That some really skillful players, and I've got to say, probably. Technically, technically more efficient than we were in my day but their understanding of when and where to use it they, they don't seem to have and you know in, in 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 the early 80s when I played so if I played in the in what effectively was the A team on a Saturday we might have some senior players who would either fallen out of favour or returning to fitness they would play in these games we would play in a reserve league in the central a reserve team in the central league where it was players who weren't playing in the first team, senior players would play. You know, I remember playing Man United in a in a Central League game at Main Road, and there was eight senior internationals playing for Man United. And when you make a mistake, the senior players talk to you and guide you and, and you know, so understanding the game, we might lose possession. And as a winger, I might be thinking, oh, it's not my job to defend. And I'd have Asa Hartford, a Scottish full international, alongside me going, Simo, Get in here, tuck in here and make it hard for us, you know, make it hard for the opposition. Come and do your job out of possession. And, and, and that was how you had to pick things up. And sometimes it wasn't said very politely to you. Sometimes it was, you know, it wasn't a carrot. It was a stick that was used to, to make sure you understood it. So it's knowing, knowing your role for the team, knowing when and where to do different things you know don't be trying Cruyff turns in your own 18 yard box because it might you might concede a goal and although it might look fantastic and you might get a big ooh from the crowd when there's 25,000 in main road and you do it try to do a Cruyff turn in your own 18 yard box and you give it away and you concede a goal you know you're going to get some criticism for that so it's it's understanding how to play um, and I think that's Really, if I'm going to be honest with you, you can, you can simulate game situations in training, but it generally comes from actually playing in a match where it's, you know, it, it's an opposition who are trying to stop you from doing it, an opposition who are trying to actually score and, and get on top in the game. And I, and I think that's, 
that's where you learn. And that, that was one of the things that I decided when I first started coaching with the under eights and nines and tens, <clears throat> I wanted the young, the young fellas to, to actually learn in the game. So we, you know, we were playing, I don't know, was it seven or eight aside? I think the small sided games were then. So we would do eight aside practices where they learn in the game and, and whatever my theme might be building from the back, whatever it might be, but they did it in the game and they learned from, from the mistakes and it wouldn't be a case of stopping and beasting them for actually making a mistake, still encouraging them to try it, but understanding why you're doing a certain thing, why if you pull out wide as a, as a centre half, what, what options he needs ahead of him? Does he need somebody dropping on the inside as a midfielder to receive? Does he need a striker dropping into a pocket and, and trying to form those little diamonds where you can get either an inside pass, an outside pass, a straight pass, or even a diagonal? It's getting them to understand that in an actual match scenario. No, you definitely, I, I definitely see what you're saying there. And I think, you know, just get interesting, get your views in because for you to kind of take that approach, it's probably considered a more of a modern day approach. Um, you know, and, I'll, and I want to, there's kind of two bits I want to kind of go into. First, we'll take you back to the experience where, you know, you had, you, you're being coached by Steve McLaren and what was the other gentleman's name? Jim Smith was the manager. So Steve McLaren, Jim Smith, I wanted to first of all pick on that and identify a few, you know, what was, Maybe one of the biggest things that you learn under that under under that pair. Um, well, the way that they were, they were a really good managerial team. So Jim was a wheeler dealer. Jim was the generally was the bad guy. He was the bad cop, and Steve was the very calm. Um, a really really good coach, really good coach. One of, one of the best coaches I've ever I've ever worked under and worked with. Um, he had a real variety in his sessions. Um, but he was just really, really simple and clear with his messages. You know, for me, I, I don't see, I don't see the need to make football complicated because really, it is a very simple game, and especially when we have such talented players now. And I, and I'm saying we, I'm talking about the English, I'm, I'm talking about the England development teams, and I'm talking about our our you know our football leagues we have some really t talented footballers out there um so they're going to do the exciting things but if we can also keep our messages really simple to them and clear then they should go into the game with a real clear game plan so then they can then go and sort of execute their their, their great skills that these guys have got i oh, thank you for that and obviously you know, to link back into the other point you talk you know about the modern day approach i guess Know, things have shifted massively you know you, you talked earlier about you know doing the prelim badge and just coach education as well has shifted massively from what, what it was maybe back then to certainly what it was when I was doing my qualifications and what it is now mm. um, what would you say you know what are your views on the way where the coach education system sits at this moment in time and secondly what would you say are some of the biggest benefits um, to either either way because people would you know the argument would be that maybe before it was a lot more technical based, technical mm -hmm. focused, which is um, certainly how it was for me when I came through and did my qualifications um, up until you know the last couple of years where I recently completed the Advanced Youth Award. Um, whereas now it's much more holistic based, but which I don't think is a bad thing. I think it's you know very positive thing. I think it's definitely a, a, I guess much more potential for for improvement and development from that perspective. But I do think maybe potentially shifted too far away from being a focus on the technical stuff. 
yeah, I, I, I have to agree. I think um, football coaching is about football. And I think, um, I think coaches, to actually make a commitment to go and do your coach education and do your badges, whether it be the, I know they've changed the names, but I don't even know what they are now, levels one, two, three, four, five, AYA, whatever you want to call it. If you're showing that commitment, I think you're, you're obviously a good person who wants to actually be committed to that role as a coach. And I think as a good person, you, um, you embrace all of that holistic approach. You embrace the fact that, you know, you, you've got an eye for, you might have a young player who you're looking at and going, he's got something on his mind, him. he's got a bit of a problem. So you, you'll go and have a quiet word with him or if he makes a mistake that he's, he's just not expected, you might go and say, is everything okay? You know, is there anything I can help you with and, and try and try and deal with that side of it. So that, you know, I think as a coach, you have to be, you've got to be a teacher, you've got to be a psychologist, you've got to be a, a child expert, you've got to identify all of those things in the early ages. And I think even in professional football, you have to you have to be a good person to recognise why somebody's not. You know, nobody goes out to have a bad game. Nobody goes out to not not work hard. Or I've not come across many of them. There's obviously an issue, and it might be well, I'm carrying a little niggle. It might be well, you know, you'll know you've got you've got a young child and, and another one in the way, and you might be my missus is. is pregnant again we're really struggling she's got sickness we've got a young child I'm not sleeping very well at night there's all of these things that you have to take into account when you when you're dealing with footballers because although being a footballer is a fantastic life we all have another life outside of football that actually brings some baggage with it so I think the you know on the coaching side of it I'm all for um, a coach taking the holistic view and making sure you're aware of everything. But I also don't think we should detract away from what you really are there to do. And that's to coach the players to be better footballers, whether that's um, better technically, better tactically, better physically, better psychologically, whatever it is. That's your role as a coach to make sure that's better. And it's, it's up to you to actually... Um, to plan your sessions to be able to deal with all of those types of the of, of the character of a player. No, and I don't totally agree with that. But, you know, what, what would your views be on in the sense that you know it's a conversation I've had a lot of coaches over the last couple of years in particular, and I consider myself quite fortunate to some extent in the fact that I was maybe exposed to what the pathway used to look like in terms of coach education and yeah. kind of have a bit more experience of you know certainly so you know just kind of picture level one, level two, B license, old style. Uh, goalkeeping level two, goalkeeping B license, old style, um, but A license, advanced youth forward, new style, post 2016, yeah. when you know, there were all these changes, the England DNA and whatnot came in. Yeah. Um, so I consider myself quite fortunate because I've, I've been able to see both ends of the spectrum in that respect. But those coaches who are maybe uh, traditionally would maybe want to go onto these courses to maybe get some of that technical information, on the, get a bit more understanding of the technical and technical knowledge. Um, and certainly would I would consider it as maybe been a more a tutor-driven and tutor-led environment because there yeah. was a lot more directive from the tutors in terms of even just exemplar sessions and things like that. Yeah. Where for me, I, I know certainly I picked up a lot from that when I was on the course. Um, but what would your advice be to those coaches who maybe feel like they're, they're maybe not getting that on the courses anymore? And I think one thing that must be said that 
I think it definitely puts more onus on the coaches now to actually go and study the game. Yeah. Um, which I think yeah. is, is a fantastic thing. But where do coaches go to do that? Because well, that's the thing. This is, I, it's funny because I, I've just had a I had a text message this afternoon off a off, off a, a a guy who I know whose son's just started coaching um, with an under sevens team and he got his photograph in the paper and the team developing and all this. And I just said, look, that's brilliant, but make sure he gets on the grass and coaches as much as he can, because that's where you're going to learn that that's where you actually learn. So my advice to people is yeah, fantastic. Do the courses, make sure you get all your, your certificates and get your clearance and the term I use is this 10,000 hour hypothesis thing. It's, you know, I know it's an old term, but you have to get the hours on the grass or, or whatever grass, whatever surface you want to use, get out there and coach because what the under eights taught me at Blackburn, which strangely enough, I took into Rochdale was you have to be organized and that's what your coaching courses do. They organize you to try and get, um, I always talk about a carousel approach of your session so it flows because if you don't have a carousel session and it doesn't flow with under eights, they're going to be climbing the trees, they're going to be scrapping with each other, there's going to be a couple crying that you've got to pick up the pieces of that. So you have to be organised. And I think that's what coaching courses do. They get you them organisational skills and then you can then recognise what, what type of work you need to do with the players how you can make it game related. I just don't see the point in any coach setting out a lovely, pretty rainbow of, co of cones out on the pitch if it's not actually specific to the game. You know, it's not about the colour and the number of coach uh, cones you can use and what sort of equipment you can come out with. It really is about how game specific you can make it and, and how you can keep the players engaged and keep the players entertained in a way and keep them excuse me, interested in the session. And, and, and that's what you've got to do. So for me, any coach, anybody, if they're even just starting out on the coaching, coaching journey, go and get with a team. Don't, don't think you're going to go to the Premier League straight away. You've got to go and start somewhere. Um, you know, I've been really fortunate in my coaching career. I've had some really good jobs, but I started out with under eights, nines and tens. That was my that was my start point. And that's where, you know, unless you're very, very lucky, that's where most people's journey will start. I totally agree. And I thank you for sharing. And I kind of just on that, then, you know, you talked there about the importance of you know, having a start to the journey. And obviously, you know, you, you've had, you have had a few successful jobs. Um, you know, you've worked in first team football for quite a while now and obviously worked with the England development teams, which you touched on earlier. Um, but I just want to start with, you know, your jobs. Obviously, you talked, you know, before you mentioned being a play manager at both Rochdale and Carlisle. Yeah. Um, and then you later on on to, you know, the likes of Preston, Stockport. How did those jobs come about? You know, what was your, what was your time like during those, those jobs? Yeah, the, the start of it all was really strange. Um, <clears throat> I'd been doing my coaching courses and I'd done my sports science degree. And I got to a point while I was a player at Blackpool, that I realised I did want to go into, into coaching. And it occurred to me that as a footballer, you never have to do an interview. So I'd never done an interview in my life. So I asked the manager, Steve McMahon, if any jobs came up, could I, could I have permission to apply for the job? So I had to put a CV together maybe get an interview and go through that process. And he agreed to it. And the Rochdale job came up um, 
I did my CV, I applied for it, I told Steve McMahon about it, he understood. And I never heard anything back from them. Um, John Hollins got the job. And then probably about nine months later, I got um, I, I was I had a bit of a disagreement with Carl Oyston at Blackpool over a new contract, and I decided to just leave it. And Steve come to me one day and said, Rochdale wants to take you in as a player. They're, they're pushing for the playoffs. They want you to go in. So I signed for Rochdale, played about the last, I don't know, 10 games of the seasons. We got to the playoff final, uh, playoff semifinals. And at the end of the season, John Hollins couldn't agree a new deal. And the chairman come to me at an awards night and said, um, are you still interested in the job? And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I know you applied for it last time. And it's the first time anybody had even mentioned that I'd applied. I said, well, I've never thought about it because John Hollins is manager. He said, no, he's leaving tomorrow. Um, his contract will be terminated. We can't agree a contract. Would like to speak to you about it. So I had an interview um, and then they offered me the job. And I was never really 100% whether I wanted the job or whether it was the right thing for me. But I decided that I may never get another opportunity if I don't take it. So I decided to accept it. I was told, I, I actually said to the board, look, you're taking a huge gamble here because I've got no experience of managing a team. I've worked with under eights, nines and tens. It's all new to me. I'm going to need some support. And I was told, yep, you'll get loads of support. Don't worry about that. Took the job. And basically it was like, just get on with it. Go and sort yourself out. And I had to learn on the job. And the big thing that I learned from learning on the job is that you make mistakes. And I made I made mistakes. I made mistakes in, in quite a lot of things. Um, but ultimately, we weren't far away from having a decent season. You know, we were... When I left the club, they had about £650,000 in the bank from a really good FA Cup run that we'd had where we got through to one of the, I think it was about the fifth round, we lost away at Wolves live on TV, so they made a lot of money. Last game of the season, we were winning away at Macclesfield and we would have finished about 13th in the league table and we conceded two late goals and it dropped us down to 19th. And that was considered a poor season, uh, which, uh, and again, my opinion was it was a poor season as well. But we were probably five minutes away from finishing 13th and leaving with that much money in the bank would have been a decent season. Come to the end of the season, the, the board uh, offered me a new two-year contract that said that they wanted basically to choose my assistant manager. They weren't happy with the guy. My, my mate who was the assistant, Jamie Hoylander, said, Either he goes back to the youth team and you sack your youth team coach or you sack Jamie and we're going to bring a, a, an assistant in with you. If you don't do that, then the two-year contract's not there. So I made the decision to leave, left the club. I then went into Carlisle um, as a player under Roddy Collins, uh, my hometown club, and I was looking on that as being the end of my playing career. I would think I was about 36 at the time, maybe 37 after about a month, he got the sack. They asked me to be caretaker. I then got the job permanently and I ended up staying there for three years. We had successive promotions and then I got asked to go and be Preston's manager in the championship. So I was at that point at Rochdale where I'm thinking, do I really want it? And then probably, what would it be? One, four, six years down the line, I'm thinking, how did this happen? I've been, I then got sacked at Preston after 18 months and I thought, wow, that, that was all a bit of a whirlwind that six years. Where did it all go? Well, you know, what, what made that decision for that to happen? 
But because I'd got that opportunity, everything just snowballed. And, and again, I know I was really fortunate. I know it's not easy to get those opportunities for 99% of the, the, the coaches out there. But I got an opportunity. I decided to take it. First one looked like a bad decision. And then after a while, it all seemed to snowball and jobs seemed to follow after that. And, and thankfully now at 54, I'm still involved in it. <laughs> And that's fantastic. And I think, you know, I just want to take you back. You know, I think, how important is it then, you know, you talking about getting an opportunity, maybe you weren't really thinking about it at the time, but that first opportunity, and I'm, you know, I'm just maybe more appealing to the audience and anyone that does tune into this really, about how important it is to sometimes maybe take an opportunity, even if you feel like you're not ready for it. Yet. Yeah, oh, no, I think, I think it is. I think um, it, it's a really strange one, but I always use the analogy that when, you, when you're thinking with your partner of having children, you always say, are we ready? We, and, but, and, to, and even if you think you are ready, once the child comes along, you're not ready. It, nobody's ever ready for it because it is a massive shock to the system. And I think that's the same in coaching. If you wait thinking, I'll, I'll wait till I'm ready, yeah. it might never come. Sometimes you just got to grab the bull by the horns. And, and that's what I did with Rochdale. And I accept, I, I hold my hands up now and know that I made mistakes in that role. I sometimes things though, uh, think that those are your biggest learnings when you make mistakes. You know, I, I made mistakes on the management side, and it's probably not. It's probably not something that's a real big role for a for a coach, a head coach, or a manager. Now is that I learned so much about budgets. I learned so much about short, medium, long term planning, because I, I had to learn on the job, and and I I made the mistake with budgets. Um, I accept that, but that's, you know, that, that was part and part of it. But my mistakes I made there, I was so much better in my next job at Carlisle United. I still had to manage budgets at Preston in the championship. At Shrewsbury, I was managing budgets. I was at Stockport County. I was juggling balls to try and manage budgets. I then went to Portugal working in academy and I was solely in charge of the budget of that. So it was such a massive learning experience for me at Rochdale. So as much as, if you probably go and ask 90% of the Rochdale fans, they won't speak very well of my time there. But for me, it was a fantastic learning experience that I learned so much about the, about what was needed to, to stay in um, in management and coaching. Excellent. You know, I just want to kind of just touch on that Rochdale uh, one more point. So you talked there about, you know, the owners or the chairman basically came in, basically gave you an ultimatum, really. Mm. Um, now... For those that maybe are listening to this, maybe looking at, I guess, you know, I really want to kind of create an honest and open uh, view of what that environment actually looks like. And I'm sure it hasn't probably changed much to where it is now today as well. Is that something that's common where managers are being told that, you know, that you have to have a certain member of staff or we're going to have this member of staff? And, you know, what, what does that do for you as the manager in, in the sense that, it's almost like well, you're giving you've made me the manager, but you're now going to tell me who I should work with. Yeah, I think it makes it very difficult, especially if you, um, especially if you don't know the person you're bringing in. You know, I I took the job at Rochdale. Uh, Jamie Hoyland was the youth team coach at the time, and and you know, me and Jamie grew up together from 1982. We both joined City at the same time. We'd known each other all these years, and and you know. 
I make no bones about it, is, is my best mate. So it was the right thing to bring my best mate. But it wasn't my best mate who was somebody who works on a building site. It was my best mate who was an A-licensed coach who knew the game, who was doing a really good job bringing young players through at the club. So it was the right thing to do for me. Um, and then I brought another guy, Colin Green, all in to be a coach. Again, somebody who's worked in the FA as a, as a coach educator and still works for, with the Lanx FA now. Really, really good coaches, good people as well. So I brought these in. So for the directors who, as I said to you, gave me no help whatsoever in this role, for them to turn around and say, look, we want you to stay, but we're not happy with your assistant as your assistant. It can stay as your youth coach. And I felt that that was sort of undermining me as the manager of the club. And I I had a decision to make. And, and I'll be honest, I came away from the meeting um, when, they, when they had this discussion and I, I rung Jamie, I said, listen, Jamie, I've got a big decision to make tonight. And Colin as well, I rung him and had the same conversation. I said, I've got a big decision to make, uh, to make tonight because I've been offered a two-year contract. And if I decide it's the right thing, thing for me to do and it's the right thing to stay at the club, I'm afraid one of you is going to get the sack tomorrow. Um, but that's the way it goes. If I think it's right... And when I went and both of them said, look, we totally understand, Simo. We, we get it. We understand. We're not very happy about it, but we understand um, you make what the we, we trust you. You'll make the decision that you think's right. So I went away, spoke with my family, pondered it over the night. And I just called them the next day and said, I've made the decision. Um, I want to stay with my staff. I make the check. You know, I make the choice of that. So I'm going to resign. And I, and I left. I, I only had about. What did I probably had about two months of my contract left? I said, no, terminate my contract, I'll leave. Um, now then when I went to Carlisle, I was able to bring my own assistant in and I was able to choose the coaches at Derby County. I was told to work with the staff there because I think deep down we knew that they were all going to leave to go to Derby County with Billy Davis at some point, and they all did. Um, so I was able to bring my own staff in, and I had a really good group of staff working together there. Uh, at Shrewsbury, I was asked to work with the staff, but I got on really well with them, John McMahon and Stuart Delaney, so they were excellent, no problems at all. Stockport was a different one where I was told to work with two members of staff who'd previously been with Jim Gannon, and unfortunately, they weren't very honest with me. Um, were a little bit devious behind my back. Um, and that I was told to work with them for a month and see how I felt about it. And, and if, if I wasn't very happy, they'd change it. And in that month, they gave them contracts without me knowing it. Um, so they were tied in to work with me. And then when I eventually got the sack, the two of them suddenly appeared with all these names of players that they'd scouted suddenly all appeared on the board of all these people they'd been looking at and monitoring. And never for one minute did they ever even suggest any of these names to me. You know, and there's even, there's a rumour that one of them's put out that I refused to sign Jamie Vardy from FC Halifax. I had, they, they brought him and sat him in the, in the desk in front of me. It's absolute garbage. I've never, apart from coming across him when he scored goals against me, I have never sat down in front of Jamie Vardy. So these people, so it can be very difficult, can be really difficult. And I think that's why managers nowadays, head coaches, want to bring their own staff in because the job's really difficult. And if you're feeling as though you're looking over your shoulder all the time, it's even more difficult and can make, you know, if you, 
you know, if, if you're working with somebody who you trust and you say, listen, I'm thinking of going with this at the weekend, then you know you're going to get an honest answer back. You know, they're going to say, not sure about that, Simo. Have you thought about this? Or, yep, I agree with that. Whereas if you don't trust them, it's a really difficult environment to work in and can make the job even more difficult than it already is. I can totally, I can totally imagine that. And, you know, you mentioned a lot of roles there around, I guess, being a manager. Um, you know, when you're working at senior football, it's very heavily focused on results-based industry and you know, producing those results. You talked earlier about, you know, even just a simple FA Cup run. Mm. You know, you might have how much that meant for the club, obviously the money that it brought in, but even that, you know, that final day of the season where you've conceded a couple of goals in the last 10 minutes and you've gone from being 13th to now 19th. And that's probably yeah. a, a whole load of, of, of some to, to, to add to that. But, you know, you've also then spent some time working in youth football and more more specifically working with the FA and, you know, part of that historic uh, under-20s World Cup win. Um, how did that come about? And what were the, I guess, what were the, you know, you mentioned earlier about learning experiences and learning from the failures. And, you know, yeah. for me, I often, you know, I really try and make a point that, you know, for me, failure isn't the opposite of success. In fact, it's a part of success. Mm, definitely. Um, so what you know? What what has your journey taught you up to that point that you maybe had to adjust and implement differently when you now took in that scene that, that England under twenties group? Mm. What was that experience like? You know, and it, 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 great honour it was. Yeah, I think the big thing that I learned. Um, so the, so I was again. I keep using the word lucky, and and I don't think I am just lucky. I must have something. I don't know what it is. I have no idea. I'm I'm not the person to ask where I've got. But I was really fortunate the way it worked. I live about twenty five minutes from St George's Park. I was out of work. Um, I was at a game, and I got invited by A.D. Boothroyd and Steve Cooper to go in to watch them working on a camp. So. Um, again, the door was open for me to go and watch. And after the second visit there, watching the under-17s, the head of development teams, Matt Crocker, asked me if I'd meet him for a coffee, asked if I fancied working with the FA. Um, and he told me at the time there was a job going with the 20s. Would I interview for it? So I said, yep, yeah, I definitely would. So I did the interview. He called me the next day to say, look, you haven't got the 20s job. We think your, your skill set's a little bit similar to what we've got. Um, but we'd like you to work as the assistant with the under 16s. And I, it's quite, quite funny, really, because I was in the gym and I was on a, I was on a treadmill running and I was absolutely breathing out my backside while I was running on this treadmill, trying to take this call from Matt. And, and I was a little bit angry when he, when he said it. And I said, oh, I'm not sure under 16s is for me, Matt. I said, um, uh, you know, I, I need to have a think about this. He said, well, don't rush, have a think about it and call me back. So I went back on the treadmill and I'm running again on the treadmill trying to get the anger out of me. And I thought, what am I doing here? You're just about to turn a job down working for England. Don't be so bloody pig-headed and stupid. So I come out of the gym, called Matt and said, look, I'd love the opportunity to come and work with the FA. I'll happily come along as the assistant and let's see where we'll go from there. So I did a couple of camps with England, uh, with England under 16s, got an opportunity to go to Brazil to play a double header against Brazil, which was a magnificent experience, not a country I've ever been to. Um, and then we had this, the change around with staff when the press issue came up with Sam Allardyce and Gareth stepped up, Aidy stepped up. And I got asked if I would work as a, like an intern role, um, short-term role to take the under-20s to the World Cup, which 
you know, I, I describe it as being one of the kids who get the golden tickets for the Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. You know, it was, you know, Matt said to me, I'll let you have a think about it. I said, no, no, there's nothing to think about. I'm taking it. I would be delighted to take it. So I, I stepped in. And I think the one thing that I realized was that I actually need to ask the players a little bit more what they want, what they want to out of it. You know, so I, I sat down with we, we went on a camp to France in March of 2017. And I, and I basically sat down with a group of of um, what I would I called it the senior group, which is a bit stupid because they're all under 20. So they're all the same age. But, I, I, you know, this is like a leadership group. And I sat down with them and said, right, come on then. Tell me where we're going to go. Tell me, tell me what's going to happen and, and how do you expect it? So their, their first thing they said to me was, we're going to win the World Cup. And I'm like, oh, well, right, okay. Well, you lost in the semifinals of the Euros. We've never won a, we've never won a game in the World Cup finals for 20-odd years. We've never won consecutive games for 28 years. What makes you think you're good enough to do it? And he said, and they just said, we will. So we sort of came up with this plan of what we were, how we were going to go about it, um, how we were going to work, what the, what the commitment had to be for everybody, what the buy-in had to be. And I think that was the big thing that I learned and I took into straight away that I need to ask them, I need to ask these fellas because they're good young footballers. They're a different era to me. You know, I'm, I was whatever I would have been, 50, maybe 51 at the time, whatever. I'm a different era to these fellas. So I need to know how they want us to do it. And they gave me some really good pointers. And then myself, our coaching team was myself, Aaron Danks, Andy Edwards, Rich Hartis, the goalkeeper coach. And we had um, an analyst called Alex Scott. And basically between us, we came up with a plan of how we were going to do this, how we were going to take it to the World Cup. And, and that, that was how it was. And we stuck to the plan. Um, you know, there was times where and, and we had this plan set out in a document with every single hour of the day was mapped out for the whole time of meeting up on the prep camp to the final day of traveling back. If we were to win the World Cup, it would be 35 days in total. We had every single day planned out. This is what will happen this day. And there was times when, you know, when we were in Japan where I'd go, you know what? something not quite right here. I think the knackered, they need a break. So I'd change the plan for the next day or I may make training in the afternoon instead of the morning. So we tinkered with it a little bit, but we, in general, we stuck to this plan that we had. And um, thankfully it worked. You know, you talk about having that plan and that depth of planning. It's not, it's, you know, I'm sure it happens more often than we kind of probably imagine at the top level, especially now with, you know, it literally being marginal gains at every aspect of everything to mm. kind of make the difference. What, how, how, I guess, you know, you talked about having different types of training as an example. What, how do you decide on that sort of stuff? You know, because, you know, there's a, I guess the time differences, obviously going to mm. different countries, a different playing, um, you know, you now to factor in and obviously the, the travel time and things like that. What, what are the, you know, beyond, I guess, the probably obvious things, what are some of the things that you maybe take into consideration when deciding what that plan should look like and how much um, of that is from yourself and how much of that is inputted by, I guess, the other multiple disciplinary staff? Because I know that, especially with the FA and the England yeah. development team, says there's probably about 25, 30 staff for one, for one squad. Well, we had, 20, we had 23 players went with us to the World Cup final. We had 19 full-time members of staff. So there was, everybody had to be factored in. So, 
you you take advice from people who are specialists in their fields. You take it, but again, we had a fantastic medical team. Um, you know, um, Glenn Ray, we had uh, John Alty, um, you know, some really, really good staff who were working with us. Um, Reeves, from, who was part-time with us from Leicester City. Um, we had, we had and, and I, I'm not going, I don't want to offend any member of staff that I miss out, but we had some really, really specialists in their field working with us. So, you know, it, it might be that the doc would come to me and say, listen, Simo, I think they need a few extra hours in in bed tonight. Let them have a lie in tomorrow morning. And then I'd think, yeah, yeah, you may be right. Or some days I'd go, no, I'm sorry, doc. No, we're doing it this time because I want them to train at this time because then that gives them a longer recovery time before the next game or the next session. So you try my own experience, I would consider, but I would also take experts in their field on, on their view on what it might be. So I think you've just got to utilise the staff. It, and, and that's a challenge when when you're working as a leader of a group, whether that be a manager, whether it be a head coach or whatever it might be, as and it's not just a leader of the, of the players, but you're leading a group of staff as well. Everybody wants to have a little piece of the pie. Everybody wants to have their, their say in what goes on. And it's actually just making sure that everybody feels a part of it, but you're not sort of moving away from what's really important and the, for me the most important people are the players so what is right for the players is it right that they have an extra couple of hours in bed so we train later does it really matter if they don't get up for breakfast at eight o'clock or is it really important for nutrition and hydration that they are up at eight o'clock and then ready for training so it, it's all of those things that you have to take into account and it's um, I've got to say there was times when we're away I used to just go into my room, knock the lights off and sit in a darkened room just to let my head calm down because you're just constantly making decisions. And that, when you're on an England camp, that's as close to the day-to-day -day management things that you have to deal with in club football as well. And so my experiences of club football really, really prepared me well for the experience of working with development teams on international camps. Oh, fantastic. And obviously, I just want to kind of look at, look at a tournament now. I know you... Now you you guys were putting uh, a group with South Korea, Argentina, and was it Guinea? Was it Guinea? Yeah. Um, you know what what was that like, and what was the biggest thing that you maybe kind of observed in, in terms of the differences of the of the of the teams? Because you know from all different continents, you've now yeah, it was really interesting to see it. I mean, it, I'd had a little taster um, with my experience with the under sixteens. Um, I'd also had the camp um, where we played against Senegal and we played against um, France and Portugal in a prep camp um, it, over in France. We did a load of preparation leading into it. I always remember the first game against Argentina, we had a 52-page document of stats and info about how they play. And it was really interesting because... We, we, we studied loads of their games from the South American qualifiers to get to the World Cup finals. And we saw how they played, so we came up with a game plan. And while we were in Japan on our prep camp, we found out that they were playing against Venezuela, against um, Vietnam in two friendlies over in Vietnam. So I did an internet search to find if there was any English coaches working in Vietnam. And I, I found a guy who I got in touch with him and asked if he could go and watch these two games for me. We would get the tickets for him. We would sort his expenses out. And he said, no, I would be delighted to go and help England. I don't need expenses. I will get into the game. And this guy did it. 
and I feel really bad here because I can't remember the guy's name. But anyway, he, he did some reports for us on these two games. And when I got the reports back, and in fact, we managed to find a live stream of one of the games. The squad was 90% different to what we'd seen. Their playing style was totally different. So we literally, I had all of this 52-page document, we had to start from scratch again. And this is about seven days before the tournament started. So we realised that all of that planning was a complete waste of time to do all of them documents. Um, and when we got into the game, we, I, I, it sort of occurred to me quite quickly that it had to be more about us. We had to make sure that our plan was right. And if our plan was right, then we'd have to then hope that our players were good enough. And i got to say, it was a really tough game, but we won it quite comfortably. We scored at good times, just before half-time, just after half-time. Um, we had the first, um, my first experience of the video referee where their star centre-forward got sent off for uh, for a foul on, um, I think it was on Fictamori. Um, video referee asked the ref to go over and look at it and he sent him off. So that was a real big thing. And we won the game quite comfortably, but it was a really tough game as well. Um, really, really difficult game to play in. Um, so that, that was a good experience. And then, so, so my, the way that we approached the World Cup, I gave the players small challenges. At no point did we talk about winning the tournament um, until the only time I mentioned about winning was on the final of the, on the morning of the final, where I said, look, We've come this far. We may as well go and win it now. But before that, it was all about little small steps. We hadn't won a World Cup finals game for 20 years, 20 odd years. So my first challenge was, can you win a game? We did that. Then after that game, I said, look, that's great. But we've not won consecutive games for another four or eight years. So can we win consecutive games? So against Guinea, we drew 1-1. And I said to them, look, it's great. But you haven't achieved what we wanted to do. We've not won two consecutive games. We then played South Korea and um, we beat them 1-0, which gave us top place in the group, which gave us a really good route through in terms of um, the base where we were, because we our first group games, we were based in Jeonju and the hotel were absolutely brilliant with us. The South Korean people couldn't have welcomed us anymore. And it basically meant that 99% of our time we were going to spend in Jeonju at the same hotel right through the tournament. We had a we had one trip where we had to go to Chenan. We had a trip where we had to go to Sawan. But in general, most of our time was spent in this same base in Jeonju. And it was a really comfortable place, a great environment for us. And the players all enjoyed being there. So those three games helped us to, to progress throughout the tournament with the plans that we had. Oh, fantastic. And obviously, you know, you're talking about, you know, then going to get those consecutive games, which you then did, obviously, you know, by getting the win against South Korea, then obviously going on to play against Costa Rica. I think it was 2-1, was it? Yeah. Um, I guess you guys were quite fortunate because you played most of your games near your near your camp, really, didn't you? Mm. Um, yeah. So there was only two games outside, and that was obviously the game against Mexico and then the one in the final. Yeah. Now, you've got to the final. You're having that conversation with the players around, right? You're now, I guess, asking them, right, let's win. Mm. Um what does that come? You know, what what's going through your head at that time? Um, disbelief that Paul Simpson sat in Suwon um, going into a World Cup final. If I'm going to be really honest with you, it was just such a whirlwind. It was just incredible how it all seemed to happen. Um, but you know something, I, I 
it was one of them things where as we walk, as we're going through the tournament, we're looking at the different teams. We thought Argentina were a good side and they were so cocky about how they were. They even said to Jean, the hotel staff at Jean Ju, um, can we just leave all our equipment here? Because what happened is as, as you go, so we, when, when we have to leave Jean Ju to go to Chenan to play a game, we have to pack everything up, pack the vans up and leave and go just in case we, we lose the game and we're going home or whatever the scenario might be. Argentina said, we're so confident that we're winning that, and we'll be coming back here. Can we just leave all our stuff? And they ended up making the worst trip onto, I'm not saying the place where they went was the worst place, but the travel to get to where they played was horrible. It was a long coach journey. It was a flight over onto an island and another coach journey, and then obviously a return. So they got the fingers burnt by being arrogant about it. Um, but but the, the thing for us was that we stayed um, in that place most of the time. So, you know, we, we were quite relaxed about it all. You know, we were quite calm about it all. Um, and, and I think the players, the players enjoyed that. The players enjoyed the fact that that was the case. I think in some ways, you know, it's kind of, I would imagine it's kind of got you geared up for the game a little bit more in that respect. You know, I want to kind of take you now to the final now. Obviously, you know, you've, you've had that emotion. You're thinking, well, Paul Simpson sitting there about to go into World Cup final and lo and behold, half-time you won their luck. Mm. What, what's going through your mind now? Um. I, I, I've got to be honest with you, I don't remember the halftime. Remember the halftime in the semi-final where we were 1-0 down against Italy and I felt it was as well as we'd played in the whole of the tournament. And I remember going in and being really, really calm and saying, you know, I said to the players, come on and tell me what you think. And they were like, oh, crap goal to give away. We've got to do this better. We've got to do that better. And I let them finish and I just said, do you want me to tell, me, tell you what I think? And there was times where... I, I gave him a proper bollocking at times when I didn't think it was quite right. And I just said, you know something? I said, that was fantastic. That was probably your best 45 minutes <clears throat> that we've had in the tournament. I'm really pleased. And I promise you, you go out and play like that in the second half and you'll get your rewards. And it literally was a case of that. And he went out and won the game quite comfortably. In the final, there was a few little things that we had to try and adjust because we basically we weren't keeping the ball very well. We were getting a little bit distracted. And I think what happened is um, because we weren't used to World Cup finals, we were actually, you know, playing in the actual tournament itself, never mind the final itself. We weren't used to it. And I think what happens when you've not experienced it before, instead of remembering how you got yourself 1-0 up, you're just looking for the final whistle to go. You forget about doing your jobs. You just want that whistle to go all the time and you end up wishing your life away. So the thing that we just said to the players at half time is, let's just get back to doing what we're doing, what we can do. Let's get back to playing. Let's get back to being really solid. You know, we had a real, a real structure about how we wanted to play with the ball and how we were going to be without the ball, about being nice and compact. And we went away from it. So we talked to the players about this, but again, talking about it, all agreeing on what the plan's going to be and actually putting into it, executing a plan when you're nervous and you're wishing the time away. And, and I always remember a funny thing that happened in the second half of the um, of the final. 20, 25 min minutes into the second half and we were getting absolutely battered off, uh, off Venezuela. They were a really, really good side, like the surprise team of the tournament for me. 
And um, all the time through the tournament, if there was any, ever anything, I'd turn around and I'd say to, to Aaron Danks or to Eagle or Rich Artis, um, what are you thinking? And they'd come up with something. Or if they saw it before me, they'd come and stand beside me and say, Simo, we're, we're, we're seeing this here. You know, we need to do something about it. So 20, 25 minutes into the half and we're getting battered off Venezuela. And I, and I turn around to the bench and I walk over and the three of them are sat there and I went, come on, help what's happening and the three of them just looked at me and went we haven't got a clue Simo we don't actually know what's going on and I was like oh Jesus right okay right okay let's let's try and keep nice and calm then and we uh, and, and we sort of got ourselves through it but it was such a strange experience because your mind just starts going all over the place and this is the thing that we've talked about for England players is that they've never had that experience of that end of tournament feelings whereas these guys now the likes of Freddie Woodman Victor Mori um, uh, who else with Dom Solanke Dom Calvert-Lewin Adi Luckman Kieran Dowell whoever it is Lewis Cook if they get that experience of playing in the seniors now when they get to the latter stage of a World Cup they've already done it they've been there they know what it feels like and that's where we're hoping these guys will benefit in years to come and how the senior team will benefit because they've been through it. But um, it, it's a really strange feeling. It's a, and and I, I've always said this to people who want to be coaches. You have to have the experience of going into that technical area. That's where you learn so many things because it's such a strange environment. It only looks a small area, but when you stood there and things are not going right, it is massive and you feel like there's you know, the whole world's against you at that moment in time. And it's a difficult place, but it's a great experience and a real good learning to be in it as well. No, and I think it's a fantastic achievement from you guys and the rest of your team. And I'm actually had a conversation with Aaron Danks a couple of weeks back and he mentioned that moment there where, you know, it's almost like he just zoned out for a few moments. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, it's, it's crazy to think, you know, in a game of that magnitude, you're able to zone out, or, you know, you probably be soaking it up, but, you know, but uh, no, but you know, well done on that, and it was a fantastic achievement. You know, just on on that, you know, I'm interested to know now. You know, coming back to your own your own coaching and journey itself, what what would you say is help? You've referred to this a, a few times and calling yourself lucky, but I'm not sure how much I believe in luck. Um, but certainly, I think it, it does take a bit of self driving, you know, confidence and um, self belief. Oh. to achieve anything you do. So I'm you know, interested in what's helped to keep you inspired and motivated through that journey and uh, I guess get you to where you are now. I think the, the, the first part of it is actually the love of the game. And there's two parts to the game. There's the football and there's all the crap on the outside. I don't love the crap on the outside. Uh, I think there's... Um, there's so much rubbish that's involved in football nowadays. You know, I mean, I, I look at... I look at today, you know, the, the 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 latest one of Frank Lampard losing his job at Chelsea. I just think, well, you know, what do people expect? What 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 are people wanting from from the game? And that's where I think there's so much rubbish that goes on in football that that really disappoints me. Um, but I, I love the game of football. Um, I, I'm committed to doing well. Um, and I think what drove me on as a player, as I spoke about earlier, was that desire to rack up as many appearances as I possibly could. I want to be involved in football for as long as I can. Simple as that. And not because, 
not because of the rewards that go with it, just because I don't really know what else I would do. I'd probably drive my wife Jackie round the bend if I was under her feet all the time. So I want to be out there. I want to be able to, I, I don't profess to be the best coach in the world. I, I don't for one minute think I'm the best coach, but I think I have a lot of experience and a, not a lot of knowledge that I can help people um, on and off the grass to make them better people. And, that, and that's, that's what I want to do really. Um, and I always want to try and be better myself. I like learning from people. I'm, I'm I'm working alongside a coach, Keith Downing, at the moment, who is an absolutely brilliant coach. And I'm learning, I'm learning things off Keith myself by working with him day to day. You know, I've got a, a young manager in Dean Holden who's so enthusiastic. And I've got to say, he is so calm in the way he goes about his job. I'm learning fr things from him. I mean, he says that I'm in to help him, but he's actually helping me. I'm learning things from him. So I just think if you've got a if you've got a desire to be as good as you possibly can be, then that'll drive you on to to want to stay in it. Um, and when I say lucky, I, I don't mean I don't mean lucky. I just mean I've been in the right place at the right time. You know, I was in the right place for the Rochdale job to happen. I went as a player to Carlisle, and I'm on the doorstep while the manager gets the sack. I was in the right place at the right time to get a job at England and, and, you know, those sort of things, I mean, and then you, you obviously have to have something to try and stay in it. And although I, you know, I, I haven't stayed in jobs for like five and six years, I probably could have at Carlisle if I wanted to, but I made the decision to leave. Um, I made the decision to leave the FA after four years because I felt it was the right time to go. Um, I, I obviously have got something, um, but hopefully I'll get even better the longer I stay in it. I hope, I hope so too. You know, just kind of on that, then you know, you have had a, a relatively long career. Really, you still hopefully you've got a long career ahead of you, and, and hopefully you can surpass the amount of games that you've played in and <laughs> and take over that in terms of the amount of games you didn't end up coaching. But if you could turn back the t you know t time and maybe go back to that point where you first started getting involved in coaching possibly as a player manager at Rochdale and then obviously on to Carlisle. What would be a message that you'd want to give yourself back then based on all the industry experience you've had now? Oh, wow. What a good question that is, Yaz. Um, I think the Rochdale one, I would probably have been a bit more careful with the way that I spent the budget. That's, that's the first thing. Um, I would have probably continued playing more than I did. I left myself out of the team, although I was doing okay and I was scoring, I think I was the leading goal scorer. I felt as though other players weren't taking responsibility because I was in the team. Um, so maybe would have carried on playing myself, which might have helped. Carlisle, I've got to say, it was just, that was a proper purple patch for me. And, and although some players who I didn't fancy probably blame me and thought I was rubbish at the time, but everything seemed to go well for me at Carlisle. The big mistake I made at Preston was I was too honest with the media. Um, so I was too honest to the fans when really with hindsight, I should have told lies, um, which is what a lot of managers do nowadays. They tell lies to protect themselves. I was too honest and it ended up biting me on the backside. Um, I probably should have been stronger with some players who were a problem in the club who actually caused my own downfall. Um, it's quite interesting because when I first got when I got my first job, 
I was in um, I was in Val de Lobo on holiday and I was in this bar, Monty's bar, and I went to the toilets and I was stood at the urinals and a voice next to me said, I see you've joined the dark side. And I turned around and it was Steve Bruce. So I'm at one urinal, he's at the one next to me. And I said, oh, God, good to see you, Steve. You know, strange environment, but good to see you. I said, yeah, I've joined the dark side. Um, if you could, before you go, can you just give me one advice about management? And he said, every football club has got soldiers, but every football club's got terrorists. Get rid of your terrorists as quick as you possibly can, because they'll see you out the club. Mm. At the time, listen, I'd had a few drinks as well. I was on holiday in Val de Lobo, and I thought, I don't really get that. And then when I thought about it, I realised what he meant. Now, in Rochdale, I can't really say it was more about terrorists. Carlisle, I had a few people who I needed to move on, and I did, and I changed it around. Preston, I had a, a little cluster, maybe three players, I would say, who come into that terrorist category. Um, and sadly, they brought me down. Um, they, they, they caused me problems inside the club. I wasn't strong enough. The club weren't strong enough. I made a mistake of going public about it, um, which with hindsight, I shouldn't have done. I should have de dealt with it in the, in the quietness of the football club. Um, so that was my big mistake. And, and I, I think I learned from that. And, and it, it's a really strange situation because I, even when I was manager at Shrewsbury, I was accused of blaming everybody else for mistakes. And, and I don't, I really don't see where that was. I know I made mistakes myself and I don't know, I don't know where this perception was that I blamed everybody, but this is the big thing that you get now when it's, when, when things are not going well, you, you, you put out into the media straight away. You have to then give your opinion of the game. You have to give your opinion why it's not gone right. What's gone wrong during the week? Why did that happen? Why did this happen? And it's always construed as blaming somebody else when it's not. You're just actually saying what happened. Mm. I had a situation, and this this one really narks me when I think back about it. I, we were playing at home at Preston, and we drew nil-nil, and it was a really poor game. We were poor in the game. We got booed off. The atmosphere was really bad inside the ground. I go into the press conference afterwards. I talk about the game. Yeah, it's a rubbish game, blah blah, blah all of that sort of stuff. Somebody says do you think it's to do with the, the atmosphere inside the ground? And I said, well, I don't think we can blame the supporters for this. I said, you know, there's sometimes the players have to lift the fans as well. So the players' performance has to lift the fans. We can't always expect the fans to suddenly be all jovial and singing and dancing at the start and lift the players. Sometimes we have to do it the other way around. And this media guy, this press man said to me, do you think the, it's the music that you run out to then? Is, is that what it should be? And I said, well, I'll be honest with you. I don't even know what we run out to because I'm not out at that point. I'm still in the change room. So listen, if we change the music and that helps the atmosphere, brilliant, do it. So on the Monday, the newspaper, the Sun newspaper, which I know everybody has an opinion on, said now Simpsons even blaming Elvis Presley because we ran out to an Elvis song. And you know, that sort of thing. I just think that's proper crap journalism. Uh, that's yeah. what that's how they decided to do it. And, you know, this yeah. is a really uh, that was a little small piece in a rubbish newspaper that got got a headline. But then probably would have been 
four years, three years later, maybe, I was interviewed for the Hibernian job. And I got down to a stage where I'd been sent a contract. I was, you know, I've, I've since found out I wasn't the only person. There was three of us sent a contract and one person was going to be announced on the Monday. But in the papers over the weekend, this story about me blaming Elvis Presley came out in the Sunday papers in Scotland. So it actually... And whether I was going to get the job, I don't really know. But it was used against me when I was going for another job. Mm. And that's the sort of, but, but, and that's one of the things where uh, Simpson blames everybody, even blame bloody Elvis Presley once. Well, that's not actually true. And, and, you know, it's, it's quite a funny story, but it costs people jobs. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, you're talking about, you know, some of the things that could go wrong. You know, I want, I want to kind of just, you know, as we start to wind down, finish it on a more positive note, you know, thinking back on your career and your journey now, when would you say is maybe some, you know, I asked you the question earlier around when have you received your best coaching, but what, what, what would you, what would you answer for you if that was in regards to you? When would yeah. you say that you've done your best coaching? My best coaching, if I'm going to be really honest with you, Yaz, as I said to you, I don't see myself as being the best coach in the world. I, I see myself as being a really good man management, man manager. Um, I think for me, the, the management coach, and I think they kind of encompass each other. Mm. So I, I would say at Carlisle United, mm. was really good the way I managed the group of people. What was it, though, about that? that period of time or that instance that you felt, you know, that there, I can look back on my career right now and think, you know, I did really well in that. And this was yeah. because it had X, Y, Z impact, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, the first part it was, um, I recognized where we had a problem in the group. Um, and I, I cleared that out as quickly as possible. Um, I had a good relationship with the fans. I worked to build up a relationship with the supporters. Um, I made myself available for the local media um, and these are all things that go along. These are all things that you have to do as a head coach or as a manager. So I worked to get a relationship with these these people. The The relationship with the fans was was probably a little bit easier because I was a Carlisle lad. Uh, you know, I was from the city itself. Um, and then when we we're winning games, that relationship seemed to really foster and seemed to grow. And, and we had a, we had a real good time together. Um, but I also then my recruitment was good so i got good players in better players in to help us i was i wasn't worried about bringing experienced players in. you know andy priest who had had a fantastic time as a manager at berry got the sack and straight away i looked and thought you know what if he wants to come and play he could make us better so straight away within like a day of him getting the sack i said listen i rung him up i said listen priest yeah i don't know whether this appeals to you but do you fancy coming and taking your manager's hat off and just coming as a player? And and it would have been that could have been a difficult one because if I was then have a bad run of results, he could suddenly easily just step in. So I think I showed a bit of bravery in doing that, but it wasn't really brave. I just felt as though he was going to help us. Um, so all of the things that I had to do, and then I actually was, you know, I was able to um stick to, you know, get a, a group of players together and, and find a way of winning games with that group of players. Um, and, and it just all seemed to work. So that was a really good spell for me. And then obviously the England under 20s and, you know, we had an under 19s group that went to a Euros final. And, and I, I genuinely think if we'd have had, when we went to Finland with our under 19s group, 
I actually thought that group had more potential than the actual under-20s World Cup winning squad. And I felt if we could have gone to Finland with our group, we had a great chance of um, of winning those Euros and going to another World Cup finals, uh, which ended up getting won by Ukraine. And I've got to say, with our team, we'd have wiped the floor with UK- Ukraine, but the players weren't available to go. So that time with England was really good in that, Again, I was able to manage a group of staff, manage a group of players to put them out with a really clear game plan, helped, I've got to say, by the by the coaches who worked alongside us as well. Um, but but those were probably my best times. You know, I know I made mistakes at Rochdale because I was learning. Shrewsbury um, was a really difficult time for me because I, I always felt that I was on borrowed time with the owner there. Stockport was a really bad decision from me to go there. And then the other roles that I was more of a, well, I was an assistant working at Derby County and at Newcastle and now in this assistant role. I feel better prepared for this assistant role with Dean because I feel as though I can add value to him than I probably did with Steve McLaren, where I was always sort of, um, well, you look up to somebody like that who's been an England manager and I know his his image, his, his, his public image isn't a very positive one, but I know him as a friend He's a top fella, um, really down-to-earth sort of guy, really humble sort of guy, mm. and he's a fantastic coach as well when he's when he's heads-on coaching. So yeah, I've, I've been really fortunate to work with him. Yeah, no, I'll cut you there. Um, I've heard many positive things about the way you know he, he works, especially when he gets on the grass. Mm. Um, but I think I think you know, you talked about it earlier the media. Can always stir up something that can put someone in a in a different light than you know what 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 should be truly reflected. You know, you talked there. You, you mentioned a couple of times throughout the conversation that we've had now. Um, this, you know, the idea of you just want to keep learning and you know mm. reflecting back on your journey and some of the things that you've maybe could have done differently. And you know, we're all going to make mistakes, and I think that's yeah. absolutely fine as long as we can be open and accepting to those mistakes and recognize that you know there's actually value to be uh, taken away from this kind of on that note then just as we look to kind of wrap up now if i was to give you 60 seconds now to kind of leave the listeners with uh, i guess a golden nugget of yours or however many you think you can fit in that what would those be um firstly don't try and run before you can walk so don't want the Premier League job before you've actually learned how to do the job. That's the first thing. Everybody's, you know, somebody who could be really, really good in youth coaching always wants to go to the next level, always wants to be a first team. So, so learn, your, learn your skills, find where you're a specialist and be satisfied being the specialist in that. that that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing is get out on the grass as much as you possibly can. Do as many sessions as you possibly can, even if it means, you know, when I, when I came back from the World Cup, because I knew I wasn't going to coach until September, I asked if I could go and take Michelover Sports Football Club to do some voluntary coaching with them. And because they had a young player manager, John McGrath, and they didn't have a coach with them. So I asked if I could go and put sessions on and he's like, oh, we can't afford. I said, I don't want to pay you now. You're doing me a favour, letting me actually coach. So I went and coached Michelover Sports through pre-season just to, to get some time on the grass. So go and get out on the grass and go and coach as much as you possibly can. Find a, If you can't get into a professional club, go and find a local club and work your way up through that. Um, so that's the second thing I'd say. 
My next thing is remember, it's not about you. It's about the players. So make everything player centered, player focused. You know, don't don't just put a lovely pattern of cones out. It's got to be specific. That's going to make the players better, make the players think. Um, but and then I think my final thing is just make sure you enjoy it. That's that's what you've got to do. You've got to enjoy it as much as you can. You know, when when you get to this stage that I'm at in in professional football, I've got to say there are times where it's not enjoyable, you know, but ultimately when I give myself a slap and, and calm myself down and I think, what are you complaining about? You're actually working at the highest level of English football. You, you, you know, it's a fantastic opportunity. It's a great place to be. So uh, you've got to keep enjoying it as much as you can. Oh, brilliant. Thank you for that. And you know, just on a, I guess, on a final, and then just by us having this conversation, now you've kind of made yourself part of the coaches network too. Um, what's the legacy that you want to leave behind with anyone that comes in contact with you? Hmm. Um, do you know what? It's not actually about being anything to do with coaching. I want, I want people to come away thinking, do you know what? He's actually an half decent bloke him. That, that's all I'm bothered about. If, if I get, if I get some success along the way, then fantastic. But I just want people to think I'm a decent bloke. I was disappointed. It's always disappointing when you're, when you're, uh, when when you're struggling at a club and you're getting hammered, and you know people are questioning you, 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 questioning your your personality, questioning your brains, all of those sorts of things. I've obviously got some sort of brains to be able to complete an honours degree in sports science and to be able to, you know, you know, as well as I do, how difficult it is to get your coaching badges. That's not easy. And then even to follow it up and make sure you maintain your CPD throughout the years so that you do enough hours of CPD to keep your license. So I've obviously got something about me to be able to do it. Um, I, I just hope, so that's difficult when you start, when all of those things start getting questioned. So, I just want to come away after, a, after, I mean, I've already had what I think is a fantastic career. If I can stay even longer and even better. Um, but I just want people to think I was a decent bloke. Fantastic. Well, there you have it guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care.